Today's sermon comes from Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 42. Hear the word of the Lord. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. In the 1920s, on the heels of the Bolshevik Revolution, when Joseph Stalin was extending his chokehold over what would become the Soviet Union, he sent out uh, political speakers that would go out into the towns and the villages uh, convincing, brainwashing the people on Marxism, on communism, and so the peasants would hear these long speeches that were trying to get them to believe in this, this view of the political leaders. It was clear that the teaching of the Christian faith was to come to an immediate end. The church was no longer to be active. And at one of these gatherings, they'd pack them into a room like this, this political speaker got up and gave a three-hour speech on Marxism, on the glories of communism, urging everyone to believe. And he got to the end of his speech and he felt like he had done a good job. He felt satisfied he had accomplished his goal. And so he asked for a few questions. A few questions came out. He finished it. He shut down the, the end of the, the meeting and was stamping his seal of success over what he had done. Little did they understand that Hundreds of years of Russian Orthodox teaching on the resurrection was not something you could simply rub out of a soul. 
And so at the end of the meeting, before everyone left, this Russian Orthodox priest stood up in the back and he said loudly, I have one thing to say to you. Christ is risen. And when he said it, the entire gathering responded, Christ is risen indeed. Now there was a pastor who was sharing this story in a sermon. And after the service, this couple came up to him. And the woman had a heavy accent. And this is what she said to the pastor. She said, I'm from Russia. Thank you for telling your story. It moved me greatly. But I must tell you one more thing about that story, which you did not tell. You need to tell people that when the crowd said Christ is risen indeed, they knew for certain they would all go to jail. 2,000 years before Joseph Stalin was doing dictator work in Russia, you have some apostles who were experiencing something very similar. It was pretty simple. Proclaim Christ and you're gonna get thrown in prison and or get beat. And yet what's striking about the environment the apostles are proclaiming Christ in is what we read at the end of this passage. In verse 42, in spite of the consequences that were laid out in front of them, the serious consequences, if they were to continue to teach about Christ, we read in verse 42, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You say, how? How would they continue to do something with such serious consequences laid out in front of them? Now, you and I, don't face the exact same situation. If you proclaim Christ publicly, you're not gonna get thrown in prison. But I will say this, that we are in a time and increasingly in a time where the world and the culture is becoming more hostile to Christianity. And what that means is you may not get thrown in prison, but there is an increasing cost to being faithful to Jesus Christ and to proclaiming Christ, and to proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. And so the question is, in a culture where it's becoming increasingly hostile towards Christianity, how do you remain faithful? How do you remain faithful? First, through a Christ-centered view of power. In this passage, you have a clash that's happening. It's a clash between the Jewish authorities and the apostles. And it's a clash of powers, two different kinds of powers. You have a worldly power and you have a godly power. They're very different and they're, they're crashing against each other. First, let's start with worldly power. What is it? What does it produce? The Jewish authorities, primarily the Sadducees, are the ones that are leveraging this worldly power against the apostles. This, this minority movement of Christ followers is gaining steam and it's starting to get out of control. Verse 12 of chapter five. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. This thing is growing rapidly. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him that is the party of the Sadducees, 
and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. This isn't the first time they've been put in prison. It won't be the last. What we see here is the Jewish authorities leveraging power, trying to leverage power over this movement. And it raises three questions about worldly power. First of all, what is it? Simply put, it's control. That's what worldly power is. It is is control. They are attempting to control the apostles in this movement, trying to control it and stamp it down, throwing them in prison. What's interesting, we didn't read the, the passage right above verse 27, but they get thrown in prison. In the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord comes, opens the prison doors, and tells them to go back to the temple and keep teaching. So they go back to the temple. The next morning, the Jewish authorities send people to the prison to get the apostles to bring them in for questioning. They're not there. They hear they're in the temple teaching again. So they go to the temple, they put them in custody, and they bring them and they question them. Verse 28, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles respond in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. There's the picture of worldly power. It is control, human beings controlling other human beings. That, that is the, what worldly power is. At the heart of it, it's control. Second question, though, how is this control achieved in worldly power? How is it achieved? Peter and the apostles continue. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. So they highlight the manner by which Jesus died, quoting from Deuteronomy 21, which says a hanged man is cursed by God. In Roman society, crucifixion, someone being hung on a tree, crucified, was seen as brutal. It was seen as disgusting. It was withheld for the worst criminals, terrorists. It it was not even allowed on a Roman citizen or a more respectable criminal. It was that disgusting. And the the point of crucifixion, it had one point, and that was to utterly humiliate the criminal. Utterly humiliate them. Strip them of their dignity. And so we see that one of the ways that control is achieved or attempted to be achieved in worldly power is through shame. The Jewish authorities were trying to shame the apostles. The, The later when we get to the flogging, that flogging, was, that was an attempt at shame. They were trying to shame them into obedience. When you combine that with their threats against the apostles, you have the two great motivators in worldly power, and that is shame and fear, right? Shame and fear. That's the way that you achieve control over someone is through shame and through fear. Third question, what's the result of attempting to achieve control through worldly power? So what's the result of this? Verse 17, the high priest and the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged 
and wanted to kill them. The result of trying to achieve control via worldly power is jealousy and it's anger. Deep anger, deep-seated anger. Attempting to achieve control over people through worldly power is a bit like playing the whack-a-mole arcade game. You ever played that arcade game? You got a mallet in your hand and you have to hit the mole when it pops up through the various holes on the board. It is one of the most frustrating arcade games I have ever played because you take this mallet and you're trying to hit the mole when it pops up and you're always, what, a half second late. So if you're anything like me, because I can't hit the mole, I just start beating the board out of frustration. Like if I'm gonna get some wax, I'm gonna get some wax in on this board. But it really is a picture of what happens when you try to achieve control through worldly power. The the Jewish authorities are playing a game of whack-a-mole with the apostles. Putting them in prison, they get let out miraculously, they keep teaching. Put them back in prison, flog them, beat them. They keep coming back to the temple and teaching. They can't get rid of them. They can't stamp this thing out. What version of whack-a-mole are you playing in life right now? What are you trying to control? Maybe it's your your career path and trajectory. Or, Or maybe it's your children. And how are you using shame and fear to try to get control of this thing that keeps popping up? Maybe you're trying to shame your children or threaten your children into obedience. Or maybe you're trying to shame or threaten your employees into compliance. I will say this, shame and fear are powerful motivators. And they give you the illusion of control usually for a period of time. But shame and fear destroy people. Absolutely destroy people. They strip dignity, steal identity, works against human flourishing. Ultimately, and it may be years later, but a person who has been underneath worldly power, who's been controlled through shame and fear, ends up in a deep place of pain with deep psychological issues. Shame and fear as motivators are destructive, and yet that's how worldly power works, and that's how control happens. So then what is godly power? What is godly power? Let's ask the same questions of godly power and what it looks like. First, what is godly power? Gamaliel, this Pharisee in the council, understood it. He was the greatest teacher of the day. He was honored and respected by all the people. Acts 22 tells us that he actually taught the apostle Paul. 
And so as the Sadducees are getting ready to kill the apostles, trying to figure out how they can kill them, Gamaliel stands up and gives some sound wisdom. He says, be careful. Be careful what you do with these men. And he gives the two examples. He starts with Theudas and says, listen, Theudas rose up, claimed to be somebody, attracted a following of 400 men, but then he was killed and his followers dispersed. Nothing happened. Then he says, Judas the Galilean, same thing, rose up, claimed to be somebody, got people to follow him, then he too perished. And these followers just scattered. And he gives those two examples to set up verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Worldly power is about the illusion of human control. Godly power is about the reality of divine control. God is all-powerful. He's in control. His will cannot and will not be thwarted. So, second question then. How is this divine control realized or experienced in someone's life? Verse 30, God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Huge contrast here going on. Jesus, exaltation, when he received the utmost honor, utmost dignity, came after he first went through something that was utterly shameful and humiliating, and that is crucifixion. The Apostle Paul says that this is the way power of God comes forth, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews in folly to Gentiles. There were two approaches, two human approaches to salvation in the first century. There was the Jewish approach and there was the non-Jewish approach or the Greek or the Roman approach. The Jews demanded signs. They believed that the way things would get fixed in the world was through, they wanted signs of this royal Messiah that would come and through sheer power and force would crush their enemies and make things right. Just sheer dominance. That's what they expected out of the Messiah. Then you had the Greeks, the Greeks who sought wisdom. That was a little bit different. The way the Greeks or the Romans thought the world would be fixed was through philosophy and rational thinking and principles and techniques. It would be, today, it would be like the self-help movement or the self-help strategies. Little principles, little techniques, do ABC and your life will get better. That's where power comes from. And now you can see why both of these approaches just crashed up against the crucifixion. So for the Jews who demanded a sign, who demanded this Messiah to come and crush their enemies, for them, how in the world could a man hanging in utter humiliation and shame on a cross crush their enemies? And for the Greeks, how in the world could salvation come 
through something that was so disgusting and brutal, like crucifixion. It was absolute nonsense. And yet it's through this shame and humiliation of the cross that Christ was exalted to the right hand of God as Savior and as leader. Question is, how do you experience Christ's control in your life as leader and Savior? That's an important question to ask. How do you, if Christ is in complete control, he's leader, he's Savior, how do you experience his control in your life? Oftentimes, I think we answer that by just by being strong, by being disciplined. That's how we experience his control and his power. And yet what we see here is something completely different. Verse 31, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You realize Christ's control, his leadership, salvation in your life through repentance, which is admitting weakness. That his control is realized in your life when you admit weakness. That's what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse nine, he says, my grace, this is Jesus. Paul saying, this is what Christ said to him. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness, not strength. Paul responds, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Repentance is a gift. It's a gift given to us because it's through repentance, it's through admitting our weakness that we actually experience Christ's power, his control. That's what godly power is. Now, why is repentance a gift? Sally Lloyd-Jones, she's the popular author of the Jesus Storybook Bible. She was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and she was viewing some piece of abstract art done by Rothko, who was a 20th century abstract painter. And she's looking at this piece, and somebody standing close to her said, my child could do that. And she thought, what a compliment. My child could do that. Isn't the way, isn't that the way it should be? She's talked about Rothko being a painter who was just enamored with children's art. She said, even Picasso once said, it took me four years to paint like Raphael, but a lifetime to paint like a child. And after that experience and reflecting on it, she said this, the power of a child's art is defined by what they can't do, by their lack. They know they can't do it. And as a result, their art is not about showing off skill or expertise. It's coming from somewhere else. It's all heart. A child is physically not able to master pencil or paints. They struggle to depict things and every line has heart the power of the art of a child comes not from their ability or their strength. It comes from their weakness. They're not being able. Their vulnerability. What a gift. 
to admit your weakness. What a gift to admit your obsession with control. What a gift to admit the ways you manipulate others by well-timed phrases. What a gift to admit the ways you fudge the truth. What a gift to admit the ways you hog the spotlight and believe your own press releases. What a gift to admit not believing the best of others. What a gift to admit caving into fear or anxiety about the future. What a gift to be able to confess that. Be assured of forgiveness and turn to Jesus Christ, who's at the right hand of the Father in full control of you, this world, and your future. How do you remain faithful in a hostile world? First, it's through a Christ-centered, not a world-centered, but a Christ-centered view of power. Second, through a Christ-centered view of suffering. Verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This beating was a flogging. This was what Jesus received before he was nailed to the cross. It was basically a whipping. Now, whether this was the common 40 lashes minus one, that was the severe flogging or it was something less, this was a flogging that was in incredibly painful. And yet, as physically painful as it was, the purpose of the flogging wasn't primarily physical pain. It was shame and humiliation. Flogging was intended to shame and humiliate the person. And the, the apostles understood this. They understood they received dishonor from a worldly point of view. They received dishonor from human hands. They understood that but they viewed this from a very different perspective. Not from a human perspective, not from a worldly perspective that was all about shame. They experienced this from Christ's perspective and therefore they weren't surprised by this because Christ had told them that this was gonna happen. Mark 13, nine, but be on your guard for they will deliver you over to the councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. What the world and the enemy intends for shame, God intends for honor. What the world and the enemy intends for shame, God intends for honor. It was a privilege and an honor for them to continue Jesus' earthly ministry by suffering for his name. Helen Rosevere was a British medical doctor who served as a missionary in Zaire for a number of years. And while there and on the mission field, 
especially during the revolution of the 1960s. She received multiple brutal beatings, other forms of physical torture. On one occasion, she was about to be executed, and she had feared that, that God had forsaken her. In this moment where she, she felt like she was about to be executed, she felt that was the moment God had abandoned her or forsaken her. And then she says the Holy Spirit spoke to her in a very clear way, saying to her 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being identified with me. This is it. Don't you want it? This is what it means. These are not your sufferings. They are my sufferings. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. The privilege of serving Christ through her sufferings overwhelmed her. She was delivered from that situation, and after she was delivered from it, she reflected on her experience with God in that moment, and she said this. He didn't stop the sufferings. He didn't stop the wickedness, the cruelties, the humiliation, or anything. It was all there. The pain was just as bad. The fear was just as bad but it was altogether different. It was in Jesus, for Jesus, and with Jesus. How have you lost sight of the privilege and the honor of continuing Jesus' earthly ministry by suffering in him? by suffering for him, by suffering with him. And how has your obsession for control contributed to losing sight of the privilege and the honor? It is to continue Jesus' earthly ministry by suffering for him in the midst of your hostile situation you find yourself in. Let's pray. Father, we confess our obsession with control. We, have, we confess our obsession with worldly power. We confess our use of shame and fear to get control of things that we want. We confess the destruction and the harm that's caused people. Father, we repent. We turn to Christ, assured of forgiveness. And we ask that you would renew our joy. In the midst of whatever suffering we're, in, we're experiencing, Father, thank you that in a world that is hostile, in situations that are hostile. Thank you that your son Jesus is on the throne and in control and that we experience that control and that power of Christ through weakness, not strength. Father, would you help us to embrace weakness, admit weakness, 
And in that repentance of admitting weakness, realize and experience your power. And Father, for those that are, as Mark prayed earlier, for those that are experiencing tremendous suffering, for those that are barely hanging on, for those that might be crying out, maybe not crying out, but yelling, screaming for you to move. Father, by your spirit, would you give them this Christ-centered view of suffering? Would you help them to see that it's an honor and a privilege to continue your earthly ministry? And would that not necessarily take the pain away, but would it give them purpose and honor and dignity in what they're experiencing? Because they're experiencing it in you, Jesus, for you and with you, that you haven't abandoned them, that you are near, that you are with them. And Father, as we sing now, would you help even the words of this song express maybe more deeply what's going on inside our hearts. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.